Hi, I'm Julia, and welcome to another mental health episode of The Every Lawyer. This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Our guest today is Sanya Chandri, an Alberta employment and human rights lawyer who has been very active with the Alberta branch of the CBA. As you know, the Canadian Bar Association, together with the Federation of Law Societies and the University of Sherbrooke, have just released the first ever comprehensive nationwide study on mental health and well-being in the legal profession. Considering our topic today, Sanya, my first question is very a loaded one. How are you? How are you feeling? You know, I'm feeling good. Uh, I'm feeling great, actually. Uh, how are you? <laughs> I'm very good. Thank you. Coming back from the holidays, I was on vacation, so it felt very good. Where did you take some time off? Uh, I just took time off to spend with my daughter. Uh, we all fell sick with the flu, so it was mostly just staying home, but it was nice to just stay home and spend time with her. I'm asking down now because we've been doing these podcasts a little while now with uh, different lawyers, and one of the conclusions that we have is lawyers must take their holidays <laughs> and their vacation days. That's what also Dr. Kadir was telling us. So it's very good to know that, except that you were sick, but that you took time with your daughter. But I unplugged. I didn't reply to any emails or do anything. So yeah. <laughs> that's good. You unplugged. That's very important. Well, before we talk about the sort of profession as lawyers we want to have, and we will do that during the podcast for sure, we will also talk a little bit about the article that you wrote in the Global Mail in December 2021, where you uh, shared your experience with mental health as well as intersectionality in the legal profession. And you also made a bunch of very interesting recommendations and I will most well I would be delighted to go back to that a little bit but before that I'd like to talk about you like how you are today and maybe first well you started in family and immigration law now you just started a new job right in January am I right mm -hmm. yeah okay good <laughs> can you Tell us a little bit like how your own concern for your own mental well-being has impacted your career choices and the changes you made. I can tell you that, you know, when you initially graduate law school, your own mental health, at least for me, was not even close to top of my mind when I was searching for a position. For me, I moved from Vancouver to Calgary right upon graduation, and I was out of that normal articling recruit cycle. So all I cared was about getting an articling position. So when I was interviewing, it was just take me. <laughs> I don't care what the culture in your firm is. Please just take me. And a lot of people are in that situation, right? So this power dynamic of being desperate to be hired and then being desperate to stay on, you know, for the firm to retain you as an associate, it, it you know, you're afraid to show any signs of weakness. You're afraid to do anything or just disclose anything that will make you less desirable as an associate. And it's, it's, it's damaging on, for mental health. Um, for me, my mental health, as well as microaggressions and the impact of them on my mental health have been, you know, a daily issue prior to the legal profession, worsened <laughs> in higher education, worsened in the legal profession, uh, because you're just working twice as hard to prove yourself. So, you know, while I was articling, I, I got pregnant, I gave birth, I've had my first face-to-face -face direct Islamophobic incident. Uh, I um, 
my mom passed away uh, six weeks after my daughter gave birth. So a lot was happening. And, you know, it was really impacting my mental health. Plus, I was just overworking, you know. I, I was so worried about going on mat leave that I worked myself so hard while pregnant, you know. Like, my mom came to visit before she passed. I, I obviously didn't know she was going to pass. But I spent no time with her. I didn't take her to visit bath or anything. I just kept working, you know. And all of this, you know, led to an increase in anxiety and depression, worsened by grief and postpartum depression, worsened by the billable hour because my desire was to exceed in it. You know, I'm very ambitious and worsened by the pressure uh, and stigma around speaking about your mental health. So I decided to make a change from that firm to a different small firm uh, that did family and immigration uh, I, I didn't really think about it. I was just desperate to do something to change because I wasn't feeling good. I was hoping that change would make me feel more fulfilled. But there, the same things were happening. You know, the billable hour really impacted me and my ambition really impacted me. And I was surrounded by well-meaning allies, but I just, you know, my anxiety and depression worsened. I was, I had no work-life balance whatsoever. I just wanted to bill the most, get the best client reviews, but the work got too much. And, 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 you know, this time when I made the change, my mental health was at the very top of my mind. You know, I made the decision calmly, not as a desperate escape. Um, you know, I, I, I let my mentors know at the firm that I had to make a change because of my mental health. I was terrified that I would make a mistake on a file due to being overworked and terrified that I was failing as a mother to my only daughter. So I made the move. I, I joined a regulator as in-house conduct counsel. So I was still doing litigation, which I love. I was still in the realm of admin law, which I also love. So the two years I spent there were, were really great for my mental health, especially since the good thing from the pandemic was the option to work from home. <laughs> uh, and, you know, research has actually shown that working from home has positive impacts for on mental health for racialized individuals by kind of partially removing you from microaggressions. And so I was really happy there. And this most recent career transition in January that I, it, I guess this month that I made, it, it was... So it was due to my passion for equity, diversity, and inclusion and looking for how I can do that in my legal practice, like without damaging my mental health. So yes, mental health was also top of mind uh, in, in, at this point. Uh, you know, when I was exploring returning to private practice, I actually was really honest and open and was having open and honest conversations about mental health, wellness, and work-life balance, but also my career ambitions with different firms. And at times that didn't work, you know, I wasn't the right fit, but I finally found a place that's you know, I was a right fit uh, here at Forte Workplace Law, doing employment, uh, labor and human rights, which is very in line with my EDI lens, but also at a firm that values wellness and wants to practice law in a way that views lawyers as humans and not just machines. You know, this time when I made this job switch, I was more intentional about my mental health and being really open to talking about how I burnt out in private practice and left. And then now I'm coming back after being at a regulator. And so, I mean, in addition to just like noticing red flags or noticing situations where there wasn't a fit, the most important thing that I noticed about Forte Workplace Law is that they really do practice law totally different. They really value wellness and they communicate that. And so I think law firms need to really communicate to their employees that 
we value wellness and we can have conversations about wellness. Without lawyers that are well, you cannot have quality work for your clients and you can't have a productive workforce at your firm. So it's kind of a no-brainer. At the law firm I'm at currently, they're really intentional about that. So like they'll notice if you're getting burnout, burnt out, you know, just from looking at your schedule or the timing on in which you're sending emails and things like that. And they'll check in on you, you know, to make sure, are you okay? Is there anything you need? Um, but also the seniors are communicating their issues with wellness as well. So in meetings, seniors will speak out about, you know, experiencing burnout with a particular type of practice group or a particular um, type of file. And so you're talking about wellness during practice group meetings and brainstorming together on what to do about burnout and wellness. You know, do we need to refer some of our files to other associates in the firm or do we need to refer the files out? Uh, maybe we have too much work or do we have more than, you know, do we have a really complicated file that has only one lawyer and really we should have two or we should have three because it's actually a really complicated file. Do we need to look into systems to make things more efficient? You know, like, so having that there, and I've noticed that at this firm so far that, and, and, and from all my talking with them and watching them on social media, that they really do value wellness. And like, it's not like we have the solution and everyone's well, but at least we're talking about it openly and we're trying to figure out um, how to be well and how to have, you know, holistic performance measures, you know, not just assessing you by how much you bill, but the quality of your work, the non-billable tasks you're doing, how you're helping the firm. Also, I think a lot of the mental health and wellness issues and stress that juniors face is due to lack of training. You really don't know how to do something and you're stressed and anxious about it and you're worried about being competent, but also you have no formal training or mentoring. So, you know, a firm having a formal mentoring program, and even if the firm doesn't have that many resources, just assigning a mentor to each junior so they know this is my point person that I can reach out to. I think that's really helpful. And that's also something that um, my current firm does. So training is important. And also, I think the issue of civility in the profession is really important, too. I feel like, you know, time has passed and the value on civility has gone down. Maybe something has changed in the way we're mentored that that's happening. So, you know, keeping um, your mind towards civility when you're mentoring uh, associates. So we continue being a civil profession or become more of a civil civil profession. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's lo lots of things that firms can do. And, and I think the key to, to start is, is communicating that this is a value. This is really important to the firm. We're not just paying it lip service. We actually mean it. And we're actually willing to put resources towards it. Thank you so much. No, and I think that, I mean, when I was he uh, hearing you saying like what you did, all your career choices and everything, I think it's important to mention that you just recently received Alberta's Top 30 Under 30 Award. Uh, so, I mean, this is impressive. You seem to be talking, I have so much history and uh, you have such an impressive background and you have, you have lived so much already, but you're still very young. So very impressive and very, I'm delighted to have you here and to talk with you today. It's a real honor. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much. You're also a young mom, very badass mom. That's very cool. <laughs> uh, but, and obviously, you are perfectly placed to tell us a bit what law firm leaders need to be offering and need to do if they want to recruit the best of the best and the, the young one as well. And you kind of got my attention here when you said that after a while, while you were taking your decision, your career choices, and you, you had in mind your mental health. So you said, if I understood correctly, that you talked with the firm so like before yeah I was very open yeah that is so cool so what you you like during the interviews you like um what, what did you discuss Are you you were very open yeah, yeah I was very honest and I guess that was not good sometimes but also that meant those firms weren't the right fit you know the ones that didn't want me um, but you know I was really open with them because I had obviously left private practice and been at a regulator for for two years so I was honest with them I, I told them look like I for every every place when I introduced myself I, I explained that you know I left private practice not because I didn't like the work because I actually really enjoyed the work but my mental health was suffering I work-life balance is very important to me uh, and my wellness is very important to me because I need to be a good mom and and I feel like I need that you know to be healthy myself uh, to do that Uh, and also to be a lawyer too. I need to be healthy myself to serve my clients. So I was very honest. I just told them my story, just like I, I told you. Obviously at times that didn't work out and I wasn't the right fit, but at that point I wasn't really desperate to leave my employer. So it wasn't like I needed a position no matter what. I was just hoping that I could find something that fulfills me. Um, so it was just like an open exploration and search. So I didn't mind the the rejections and things like that. Right. So and I know I was able to find, you know, a place that does value those things. Mm -hmm. And where you, you seem to thrive a lot. Yeah. So that's very but that's a good example, I think, for for us uh, young lawyers who sometimes we were seeking for a job and we would, as you say, agree to anything without looking at the culture of the firms. And I, I'm just curious, like, do you have any now that you have more experience Would you recommend anything to young lawyers, like where, what to look at, like someone who's getting outside, who's just out of university and either looking for articling, but just, or for a new firm, little red flags, maybe like how, how can you know or the culture of a firm? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly very hard <laughs> to notice red flags because often, you know, people will say, yeah, yeah, we, we value work-life balance, but then once you're there, they don't. Um, and it's not their fault. It's just they're also underwater themselves, right? They have client pressures and they, you know, they haven't put the boundaries in place. So it's it's just gotten into this thing that can't be managed anymore for everyone at the firm, including the people at the top. Um, so, I mean, for me, like I know if, if you're looking for articling, it's hard to have that open conversation. So you can't really notice right away if there is a red flag. But I mean... For me, the important thing was also just talking to people who had worked at the firm. So confidentially reaching out to people who had left that firm. You know, I went on LinkedIn and saw, you know, okay, this person used to be at this firm that I'm interviewing at. Maybe let me give them a call and see if they'd be open to chatting confidentially um, or asking the current people at the firm too. Because in some of my interviews, I asked, hey, can I speak to some of your junior associates? I just want to get an idea uh, of, you know, how how things are at the firm and if I would be a good fit. And, you know, speaking to juniors is often really helpful on that because they'll be honest and they'll say, yeah, you know, this is how the workload is. This is what the expectations are. These are the unstated expectations and things like that right so it's 
talking with them. And I think that th- those will be the main, main things. And for me, I mean, I guess at this point, I've made enough changes and been experienced enough that I, I get a gut feeling too sometimes. Like I'll be, you know, I'll be like, hey, like, I don't know, my gut's telling me this isn't, uh, you know, for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, I think those are very good tips. Actually, talking to the other juniors, it's a very good idea. Um, little research, you know, in the background. So that's like before entering a firm. And now my other question would be, what are the strategies that you have developed to maintain a good mental health hygiene now? You know, practicing law is stressful, right? So, uh, you know, that's that's kind of a given. And you can't say it's not going to be stressful, but there's many things you, you can do to maintain it, you know, good mental health. And one thing is boundary setting. So, you know, setting boundaries with clients and colleagues and opposing counsel, letting them know that, for instance, I'm going on vacation on X to X date, I won't be available to, to reply. So if there's anything you need done, let me know beforehand or after, but don't expect a reply from me. Or, you know, even having a buddy system, you know, I'll be gone uh, these dates, but my coworker, so-and-so can reply to you during that time. Explaining what your hours are to, to colleagues, you know, okay, I'm going to be in office from, I don't know, eight to five, eight to six, whatever it is. And so after that point, if you contact me, I'm not going to be looking at my email. So if it's urgent, send me a text and, you know, it has to actually be urgent for, for, for you to do that. Um, and just explain that to, to colleagues as well. Um, the other thing, a lot of the stress comes from improper practice management sometimes too. So actually diarizing things in your calendar in advance. So like not just diarizing the deadline, but like, okay, two weeks before the deadline, one week before the deadline. So you remember, oh, this is something I have to do. So you're not doing it the day before it's due. Um, Another thing I, I, I've learned is with clients, under-promising and over-delivering. So telling clients, you know, I'll get you this draft uh, in two weeks. When you know you can do it in like a week, but just give the extra time. And then when you set it early, they're happy, you know, and at least you don't have to ask, oh, sorry, I need extra time, right? Another one is assessing what you can actually take on and learning to say no. And that's really hard as a junior, you know, learning to say no to files. but you know, learning to say, I really, and, and you can say no in a nice way where you're saying, you know, um, I appreciate this opportunity where you're giving me this, you know, really interesting file, but I want to do well on the ones that I currently have. And right now I feel like I'm at maximum capacity. Um, so, and another important thing is just taking the time to network, speak, venting with, you know, well-meaning allies, people who understand what you're going through, uh, you, know, you know, doing things that feel meaningful to you, whatever it may be for you. For me, it's volunteering. I, it makes me feel really good. So, you know, whatever makes you feel really good, making sure you take time out to do a little bit of that. Taking the time to breathe. Sometimes I just, you know, take a minute to like breathe. <laughs> Sometimes I write down my feelings, but don't send them. That also helps a lot. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Yes. Okay. And also using the resources that, that are out there. You know, the provinces, different provinces have different lawyer assistance programs. So like at, at Alberta, we have assist and uh, they have peer support. So you can just talk with another lawyer as a peer, but also professional counseling. And there's, you know, accessing that service. You, you get that for free. 
access it. There's no shame in getting counseling. I've gotten counseling multiple points in my life and it's been great. So, you know, just like you're maintaining your car, you maintain your mental health, you know? And being trauma-informed and learning about trauma-informed lawyering, because a lot of our work, we we deal with really sensitive issues and that can trigger our own trauma responses. So learning how to deal with that. And there there are courses out there for that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So those are kind of what I do to maintain my my mental health hygiene. Thank you so much. This is like, so I love it because it's real actions, you know, it's really some, some things that you can really apply. I think I will apply some of them. I really love the uh, giving, you can do it in one week, but let's give it two weeks. You know, why not? I really like that. But but what also when I when I was hearing you, uh, when you were talking and what, what I was thinking is also, wow, this, uh, this person, she is really also, I think you've gained some detachment from the work or maybe you're more self-confident or I don't know, but I'd like to know like when this, this switch happened, you know, because I'm pretty sure that when you started as a, as a young lawyer, when you were articling, maybe you did not have this uh, detachment from your work because, you know, you want to prove yourself, which is very normal. We all do when we start, but I'd like to know, like, when was this little, you know, this, we say in France to declick. So this kind of moment where you're like, okay, no, I need some psychological detachment here from my work. This is unhealthy. When did that happen? And you know, what, what did you do to go forward with that? Yeah. You know, I think I never actually have achieved (laughs) psychological detachment (laughs) i think i this is something i still struggle with Uh, i think i think so i think one of my strengths is i really care about my clients and you know so i work really hard and do really well for them and care but also there's a level of doing that too much so i have to actually remind myself constantly about that because i actually have it reach that um you know once in a while like i'll feel it coming on like now i can recognize it when i'm getting way too attached uh and then i'll like sit down and think about how i'm feeling and i'll you know realize okay this is irrational like i'm not i'm not (laughs) this is not my issue i'm not having this problem my client is and my job is to represent my client so yes i care about the issue but i'm not the one having the problem because that you know when i was in family and immigration law, it felt like I was being deported. You know, I was losing my kid. And like, that's not not very healthy, right? Um, and also, you know, I, I've been accessing my support system more. So, you know, speaking to a loved one without breaching confidentiality, but talking about my feelings helps a lot. Uh, and, you know, often my, you know, my, my um, husband will let me know. He'll be like, okay, you're being irrational here. Like, this is not your issue, you know, like you're way too attached right now. And so that's helpful too. Um, and I'm just also mindful about my own personal traumas and what my triggers are. And so I, I know when to like step back and be like, okay, like right now something's being triggered in me. Uh, and I actually found um, Myrna McCallum's trauma-informed lawyering course really helpful for that. So, I mean, I would recommend that to everyone. <laughs> yeah, I feel like trauma-informed lawyering should be a required CPD or a law school course or something because it's it's just so important. I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm also working in human rights and I've also known that uh, it's called a dare to care. Yeah. So yeah, I love it so much. It's really just about learning to take care of yourself and other colleagues that work in that. It's a, a bit on about sexual violence as well, but um, it's just about trauma-informed in general. But yes, I really agree. Thank you so much. I mean, that's you. you've given so many good tips and I think, you know, the report does identify 
identify young lawyer practitioners as being particularly vulnerable when it comes to maintaining their mental health. And I think you've given us a bunch of good ideas and tips. And I would like to a bit like go back to something that you said and that also I read in your Global Mail article. And by the way, what triggered you to, to uh, write this article? Because it's really interesting. But like, when, what, why did you want to, to share that? You know, I just felt like I, it, I'm sure other people are suffering through the same things that I suffered through. And so at that point, I was like, you know, if I share my story, hopefully it'll help others and make people realize that, hey, you're not alone. We're kind of, a lot of us are going through this. Maybe all of us are. And and also, I just wanted to get my ideas for recommendations out there. Like, I, I'm not sure if anyone will ever <laughs> read them, but, you know, at least it's out there and I've put it out there and it's not sitting in my head. <laughs> so, the, the you know, the article is mainly about my experience with my intersecting identities. So, you know, I'm racialized. I'm a woman. I'm a young mother. I'm Muslim. I come from a lower socioeconomic background where I've, you know, been through housing and food insecurity. Um, and so I have all these intersecting identities. And, you know, research shows that, um, first of all, research obviously shows that the legal profession has high rates of mental health uh, issues and stress, but also that those with intersecting identities have a more aggravated experience of, of, of mental health because of things like microaggressions and discrimination and barriers. So I, I, in the article, I talk about intersectionality. And first, I'll actually define intersectionality because that's a word that's thrown around a lot without a definition. So it's, it's really, um, it talks about, like intersectionality is, it talks about where power and, and disadvantage come from and collide. So, you know, how different intersecting historically marginalized identities interlock and intersect. So it's not just, oh, I'm experiencing racism or I'm experiencing sexism. It's I'm experiencing gendered racism. You know what I mean? Like there's a, it's a different experience. And tied to that is microaggressions. Um, microaggressions are these really subtle, often unintentional behaviors often by well-meaning people that kind of limit the influence of those from historically marginalized groups. So, you know, mansplaining, tone policing, uh, interruptions, caregiving assumptions, taking credit for someone else's ideas. And, uh, you know, when you experience these daily, you know, the way I like to talk about it is it's like a mosquito bite. Like if you're someone who's not prone to mosquito bites, you get bit once. That's, you know, it hurts, but then it heals. But if you get bit by mosquitoes over and over and over on the same arm, every time you get bit, it hurts more. You're more sensitive to smaller bites. It, it has a more lasting impact. And so that's what, what, what I'm, I'm really talking about in the article. I talk about the microaggressions I experienced, Islamophobic, uh, gendered, race-related, stuff like that. And I talk about my first really direct Islamophobic incident in a public place, which was very scary. And, you know, I talk about how all of this impacted my mental health when I was, you know, articling and a very junior associate. And, you know, I was surrounded by well-meaning allies, but like no one had the time, you know, really to, to be that support system. All of us were cogs in the machine of the billable hour, just, you know, focused on making money and, and not having time to see each other as human. And so I make some recommendations about how to deal with that. The first was that there's a level of collaboration between stakeholders, like racialized, different sexual orientation, ability status, all of that, like people from all historically marginalized groups who are lawyers being consulted on developing continuing legal education. 
because we can develop our continuing legal education to take an anti-racist lens, to address cultural competency, to address unconscious bias, wellness. So all of us are educated on these different things like microaggressions and bias and things like that, because a lot of us are well-meaning, but we have these blind spots of privilege, right? Like I have blind spots of privilege too, where I don't realize where, where I'm not seeing some discrimination or bias or something like that going on. And so being educated, all of us on that would allow the profession to be a more equitable place and resulting good impacts on wellness. The other session I had was, you know, having respectful workplace policies or an inclusive workplace policies at firms. And I know the CBA Alberta has an inclusive workplace toolkit that we're currently updating. But, you know, something like that, that firms can take a look at to get an idea of what type of policies they can have. And the other thing I, I recommended was more holistic measurement of performance for for associates. So not just your billing numbers and did you reach your target and you know, looking more at, did you contribute to the firm in other intangible ways? Did you, um, you know, maybe help with their website or did you do some marketing for them? Or, you know, uh, did you just, you know, assist your, you know, your fellow associates and, and you were a good support, support system? Do you volunteer, you know, like things like that, you know, because that also promotes the firm. Um, so, you know, taking a more holistic approach to, to, um, measuring performance beyond just the billable hour. I know the billable hour matters. I know, you know, law firms need to make money, but really looking at it as a whole, you know, wanting to have associates that are sustainable, that will last with your firm, not that will burn out, quit and go somewhere else and then burn out again. Well, Justice Thready will agree with you, Justice Thready, because we had a talk with them and you said billable hours not working. Not working. And I know that's scary for law firms to hear that, right? That the billable hour is not working. But, you know, we have to find a solution where law firms continue making money, but also associates feel human um, and not like machines. <laughs> Ideally. <laughs> um, and another thing was the more senior individuals at law firms really role modeling self-care and setting boundaries and having those conversations about wellness and, and mental health and making it safe for other people to do that by, by role modeling that. And then also having safe spaces for lawyers from diverse identities to just vent, talk, discuss practice issues, whatever. The CB Alberta had a virtual coffee series where we, you know, we kind of did that for, for different areas of law, but having more things like that where associates can get together and, and chat with people, maybe not from their firm, who are going through similar things, who have similar diverse identities. Um, it's especially important for those in small firms and solo practitioners, because you really don't have that support system there. You don't have like a formal mentor or a formal program in the firm for wellness and things like that. So, you know, having things from the organizations like the CBA and other organizations like the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, the Canadian Muslim Lawyer Association, having those safe spaces is really important as well. I think those were like some of my recommendations. I, there might be more, but these are the ones I remember from the top of my head. <laughs> Something also that you mentioned in your article and that you said again today, and, and you keep you keep talking about well-meaning allies or well-intentioned allies, but we also read in your article that you've been twice, probably more than once, more than twice, but 
two times you shared that people were standing there not saying anything and I'd like to know you know how how to be a good ally to be more than just a well-meaning ally but to be a real ally to people who have an intersectional experience of the law work uh, in law firms and were living macroaggressions how can we be good allies allyship is I think a constant learning process so you know like I'm I'm still learning and I, I find myself always constantly educating myself so you know educating yourself reading what's out there about what different groups face correcting yourself not being ashamed to be like oh I just said something that was like I didn't realize it was a microaggression but when someone points it out to me okay you know stepping back and listening to that person and not being defensive mentoring other lawyers and sponsoring them and lifting them up so that, you know, their voices are lifted up and listening to their voices, actually, um, giving people the permission to be human. We all make mistakes. So, you know, not like I've noticed that historically marginalized groups are judged more harshly for mis making mistakes than the dominant group in society. So not being so judgy and giving people the permission to be human, but also learning how to be an active bystander because this happens and you, you might want to do something and you just freeze or you don't know what to do. And there's, there's also courses out there on that. There's this um, quick online training from stand-up teams, which kind of teaches you different ways you can be an active bystander. I recently took that and it was really, really helpful for me because I also will often just freeze and not know what to do. And it gave different examples of different levels of intervention you can do depending on how comfortable you are. So, I mean, you could just speak up and be like, you know, excuse me, that's offensive or that's inappropriate or that could be construed as inappropriate or whatever, you know, or you could like make the behavior stop by like dropping something and everybody, you know, changes their attention to the thing that fell or you fell or whatever. Or, you know, you take the issue kind of offline where after it's over, you you speak to the person and say, like, I saw that. Um, I can tell, you know, that that must have been hard for you or really uncomfortable for you. What can I do to support you? Do you want me to report this? Do you, um, you know, what would you like me to do? Because I, I, I'm here to help. And if it's just a vent too, you can just vent to me. But, you know, I want to do something to help you. Or taking the, the person who did the behavior aside, right? And being like, hey, you know, I noticed you said this at our meeting. Actually, you know, here's the history behind why that's an offensive statement. So I'm sure you didn't mean it that way. But just, you know, be careful that, you know, somebody might, somebody's feelings might get hurt or some might, someone might feel uncomfortable if you say something like that. So like different things like that. Because so, I know, you know, sometimes like, especially as juniors, you're not as confident to like address it right in the situation, right? You're not going to say it right there. You feel this power imbalance. So there's ways to deal with it afterwards or even to, as I said, distract by dropping something really loudly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I love it. Honestly, I want to follow this. So if you can share it with us as well, this how to be an active bystander. I think this is also very important and even if people are more and more working at home I think we still have interactions in the office for instance but in general in life in general I think that's very good so that's also very interesting thank you I was a bit curious because that's always a question I ask myself so so so, so thanks for for those again very actionable tips that you're giving us <laughs> I love that and and also 
again, I'm sorry because I listen to you and I keep thinking about stuff, but you also mentioned in the article and again today that there was a result saying it has been proven that the working from home experience was shielding some people from microaggressions. The working from home was kind of a good thing in this case. And I was just, I'd like to have your view on that because, well, I think It's good to hear, you know, that working from home, it has some positive, like this one that I didn't know. I see here one of my privileges. I don't live uh, often those microaggression. But do you think also when I when I was reading that, when I heard you say that, I'm like, but is it like, isn't it like a plaster or a bandaid that we put to something that is, is such an important issue that like people feel better to work from home because they are shielded from those microaggressions? So I kind of feel like there's a, a work that really has to be done, an important one here that has to be done. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. You know, like that's just a band-aid, right? That's not a solution to the, you know, systemic problem. Uh, and also, I mean, working from home had that benefit, but also it had social isolation that resulted from it, right? So a lot of people's mental health worsened, uh, you know, during the pandemic because you couldn't go out anywhere and meet up with anyone. And there, and there's also a problem with, you know, getting proper mentorship and things like that. When you're at home, it's harder to get the attention of mentors through like a teen's message. It's not all great, but, but, you know, for me, I felt that it was, it, it worked for me. Um, and I was still able to, you know, get involved with different groups and organizations while working from home because things did move to Zoom. So I was able to find people to talk to and, and things that make me feel fulfilled. That brings me also, so if like, because you did mention and volunteering was one of your ways, you know, to protect your, your mental health. And could you tell us a bit more about the work that you've been doing with the CBA and with other organizations? I initially became involved with CBA Alberta through their um, equity, diversity and inclusion committee. And I felt really great because it was great to see a committee focused on that mandate. I eventually became co-chair and now I'm a board liaison because I'm on the CBA Alberta board. But but through that work it was it was I felt like we were able to do a lot of meaningful things and we're still doing a lot of meaningful things. So we did a three-part webinar series on the first one on anti-racism education specific for legal professionals, which is really cool because it's customized to that context. The second one was on how to be an active bystander. And it was interesting because that one, the second one was de delivered um, by the Center for Sexuality. So there was more of a focus on that dimension of diversity. And then the third one was just a panel discussion on allyship. That was a great series. Um, and I think it's recorded. So, um, you know, people can watch back on that. So uh, I also have been involved with CBA National on the Equality Subcommittee and recently on the uh, Administrative Law Section Executive. But the Equality Subcommittee as well, you know, the, we were able to put together a really interesting webinar on achieving racial justice in the profession and featuring voices from regulators, academics, um, lawyers on what we can do. So that was really good. And we had a three-part series as well on different barriers. So I think the There was one focusing on Indigenous lawyers, another focusing on internationally trained lawyers, and another focusing on mental health and differing abilities in the in the profession. So that was really interesting. I'm, you know, I have lots of blind spots of privilege for all three of those identity groups. So it was, I learned so much and I, I know I'm still learning and I'm still, you know, making mistakes, but I, stuff like this is, you know, really helpful. Um, I also became involved during that time with the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, Western chapter. 
And so we were able to do a lot of cool things too. Uh, and it just, it was a good safe space too. We had a really interesting event. It was our first in-person event after the pandemic about race and mental health. So talking about racial microaggressions and mental health and how to cope and what we can do. We had some experts speak to us from the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion and the Mental Health Commission of Canada. So it was really educational and helpful. Um, and then I, I got involved with the Canadian Muslim Lawyer Association. I started up the Alberta chapter because Alberta didn't have a chapter. And so we've just started up last year and we've been doing social events to help get you know Muslim lawyers together. Um, I know at our first event, I felt so like it was the first event where I felt truly, really comfortable because I was, you know, uh, it's such a gap. <laughs> You know, in most events for lawyers, things will have like alcohol and the assumption is you're drinking the alcohol, you know, um, and if you're Muslim, you can't drink the alcohol. So, you know, um, so, so, you know, just even little things like that have, have been really great. So, uh, you know, volunteering has been really helpful for me. It's made me feel like I have some control in, 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 in making change in terms of the problem. And even if it's small little things, you know, at least we're doing something. Um, at least we have some safe spaces. And at least for me, like uh, everybody's different, but for, for me, speaking about it and doing things about it is what makes me feel better. <laughs> but also I do want to note that there's this burden, this unpaid burden of equity, diversity, inclusion work on historically marginalized individuals. There's always the assumption that we will take up the cause and we will educate everyone and we will do, and you know, that's, that's tough to do when you're also a lawyer and you also have your life and you also want to meet your billable target, right? Like it's all this unpaid and uncredited work. So, you know, uh, uh, something that I want to just everyone to keep in mind is when you do ask someone to do something like that, to educate you or whatever, um, there should be some credit given. There should be, you know, if, if it's in the firm, maybe it should count towards their billable target. Like maybe you treat it as a billable thing that they just did or something like that. You know, some like, there should be compensation or some sort of credit given for that type of work. You read my mind because I was about to say exactly that is that it's, it's very great. But at the same time, it takes a lot of your time, I am sure. And, and I think that's something that needs to be uh, compensated somewhere. And because and also it profits the firms as well, because I think EDI policies, EDI activities, it it is beneficial for everybody. So I think it should definitely be something that is rewarded in some ways. Uh, more holidays, I don't know, but anything, something. First year, first year. Yeah. yeah, actually at the new firm I'm at, at Forte Workplace Law, they really do take that approach. They do look at, you know, non-billable things that you do that are, that are you know, beneficial to the firm and to the profession. And you do get credit for it towards your, you know, billable target. So firms can think of doing that <laughs> love that best practices yeah. <laughs> yes pick this up that's very good and, and also well last thing on edi but i'd like to know also like you you've mentioned it a little bit just the fact to have cocktails that are without alcohol or stuff like that to, to really keep in mind that there are other people that there are other realities other contexts other cultures to get away from the majority but why do you think it has a good impact on mental health of the legal practitioners i think the first thing we need to do is define edi i feel like it's a term that's thrown around a lot and 
most of us don't really know what it is. EDI stands for equity, diversity, and inclusion. And the difference between these terms is important uh, because sometimes we'll conflate diversity with equity or equity with equality when really those are not the same things. You can have a really diverse workplace that is full of othering and microaggressions leading to aggravation of mental health for historically disadvantaged people. So maybe first to define. Um, so diversity is kind of the numbers piece. It's about having historically disadvantaged groups at the table. So recognizing differences and having differences at the table. Inclusion is about these groups truly being accepted at the table, so appreciating that difference. And then equity is about these groups truly being equal at the table. And equity is different than equality. So if we're treating everyone equal, we're giving everyone the same resources, but really that doesn't lead to substantive equality or substantive equity, because if you start at different starting points, being given the same resources won't lead you all to the same endpoint. So equity is about allocating resources and opportunities differently to historically disadvantaged groups based on the differences to reach an equal outcome. So for instance, if you're someone with intersectional identities, you know, you're, I guess I'll give my example. So you're a racialized mother in a law firm. You need sometimes different accommodations than other lawyers in the firm, you know, so you might need to leave early to pick your kid up from preschool. Um, you might have a religious observance or a religious holiday, or, you know, in my case, a month where you're fasting in Ramadan, where you might want to change your work hours a little bit. Um, so it's, it's kind of about flexibility, because if we don't treat others with compassion and flexibility, it will inevitably lead to aggravations in mental health. Um, if you have differing intersectional identities, different barriers and being othered by, you know, little subtle signals, but also explicit things, it's going to have a toll on your mental health. So I, I think EDI and mental health are absolutely interlinked and you can't really separate the two. When you have a wellness effort uh, at a firm, you need to have an EDI effort as well. So for, from the racialized perspective, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like you feel othered, if that makes sense. You know, you feel like you don't belong because, you know, somebody just came and put, <laughs> you know, something that you can't drink in front of you. And you feel like, oh, like I feel weird saying anything because now I'm going to just like signal that I'm another, that I don't fit in here, that I, you know, don't belong here because I'm not doing what everybody else is doing. Right. So it's, there's, a, there's a form of othering there. Like, I think that's a lot of what the experience of being historically marginalized and racialized and all of that is, is that you feel like you don't belong. And there's little signals in, in different spaces showing you that you don't belong here. And that has impacts on your mental health, right? We all want to belong. We all want to feel that we belong to this profession. I guess it's also putting the burden again on the person, on the person who feel marginalized already to, to say something because the person just takes, doesn't think and is just doing that. And it's to be nice. Yeah. But think about it a little bit before, like assuming, uh, yeah, <laughs> sorry. You can see I'm a bit, uh, but yeah, so thank you. And there, so there's one last thing. If you still have time for me, I have lots of time. <laughs> so, yay. Perfect. Cause we haven't touched one last part, which is the fact that you're a mother and you have a family. Uh, and, uh, so, Dr. Cadiz, uh, in, in, in the report, well, it's not Dr. Cadiz's report, but 
she is a main uh, researcher. So, so in Dr. Kadir's report, what one of the findings was that having a family is uh, good for your mental health, and that the fear of starting a family has a negative impact on it. So, I guess if you want a family, you better start one, or if you already have one, that's very good, and you uh, should not be afraid to start one because, well, that will just impact you. So maybe just do it or don't do it, but don't don't think too much about it, I guess. That's the, that's the message. Uh, would you agree? Like, is it something you were thinking about uh, without getting overly personal, but like, was it? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would both agree and disagree. Like, I agree that having a family is definitely good for your mental health. So, you know, for me, my family is my support system and my daughter is what keeps me going. And I just, she gives me an amazing sense of purpose and it's this huge blessing. But, you know, the fear of starting one causes anxiety, but that anxiety is kind of founded on real things, right? You know, like for me, like the fact that I'm a mother has been an issue, right? In, in the profession. And I know others who have faced stigma for being pregnant, you know, like being treated like that was, bad news, you know, or, you know, um, implications that you're kind of ruining your career or, you know, suddenly you don't get as good files anymore because they assume you're not committed to the firm. You're just committed to being a mom. I understand that fear. That fear isn't irrational. People do get iced out of opportunities. People do face, you know, detrimental impacts in their career. But, but also for me, like, the fact that I have my daughter is, is, is really important. You know, for me, being a mom is kind of the core part of my identity. And, you know, we kind of need to change our, our perspective in law firms on that. The ideal worker is not somebody who can work 24-7, who has no kids, or who has somebody who's constantly watching their kids, right? A lot of us do have kids, and we love our kids, and we want to spend time with our kids. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I see that, you know, being a mom has actually really helped me become a better lawyer. Like I, I care a lot more about issues. I'm a lot more careful. And I, you know, I sometimes notice issues for clients that they might not notice because like I'm a mom too. And so I can see <laughs> things that they might face. And that support system is really important. And I don't think you're ruining your career when you're starting a family. I really don't. And, and the people that think that you are, they just need to be re-educated on why it's not, you know, something that's, going to ruin your career. And there's lots of firms that are doing really great things on that. You know, they have really good maternity leave policies and things like that. So there are firms that where people are not being punished for, for having children. You know, you come back from your mat leave and you're still being promoted and you're still getting the good files that you want and things like that. So it's not, it's, it's definitely, I don't think you should hold off on starting a family if you want to start one. But also if you don't want to start a family, that's fine too. You know what I mean? Like the, the whole point is, Everything is good. We should we should recognize diversity in the profession, diversity of family structures, and things like that. And no, you shouldn't have stigma for not wanting to have kids, right? And you shouldn't have stigma for wanting to have kids because both forms of stigma are bad for your mental health. Yeah, 
No, totally. And you shouldn't be praised for any of the other because sometimes we see the opposite, like people being so praised for having a child or not having one. So I think it's just, yeah, do whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good at, at the end, right? That's exactly my 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 opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, same here. But, you know, like the anxiety that you talk about, like the, the fact that am I going to have a family? I kind of feel like at the end of the day, it relies more on the culture that we currently have that sees people with family, people with a, a woman with a, a child that as you say she's just so she's no more a, a colleague a woman or a lawyer she's a mother and that's something also that we need to change that culture so i also thank you uh, for that and my very last one question would be there so there is this uh this finding in the report that 54.2 percent of the lawyers who were asked If you could be sure of earning as well as you're doing right now, but by doing something else, would you leave the legal profession to do so? Would you? I would not. Yeah. <laughs> I've been, I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was in grade five, you know, just given things that I've seen uh, in, in my personal life. Uh, so, you know, I've always wanted to be a lawyer and I'm like, passionate about the law and I like really nerdy and academically love the law like I'm a total like nerd like that's why I'm doing my master's part-time like I love 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 the law so I I, I would not leave I would I just want to make the like for all of us to work together to do whatever we can to make the profession better um and you know use my own skills so I can balance the law and 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 my humanity and my personal life and still you know like that humanity be recognized and respected that I'm not just a lawyer I have all these other identities and that I'm they actually make me a better lawyer and so you know seeing that so no I would not leave the profession um, but you know for those who want to leave the profession you can that's the good thing about a law degree you can do a lot with a law degree there's a lot of alternative legal careers That is true. That is true. Don't get or change the firm. You know, that's maybe a sign. Yeah, you like change. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Don't hesitate. That's also something I think is very refreshing. You know, that don't be scared to change the firm or even like, change the, the the field of law or, or or as you say, just leave the profession. I mean, you're not tied to it. <laughs> so. Yes. Thank you, honestly, uh, Sanya Chandri. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It was very interesting. I think the listeners can see, like, I was very excited to talk to you. And to our listeners, please feel free to reach out to us directly at podcasts at cba.org. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Also, please check out our other episodes on mental health in the legal profession across all our channels including, of course, The Every Lawyer, Juriste Branché, Droit Moderne slash Modern Law with Yves Faggy, and Conversations with the President, Entretien avec le Président. And this year, it is with the very charming and candid Steve Bejol. So thank you, Sanya, and have a great day. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, I'm Steve Bugeaud, President of the Canadian Bar Association. I'd like to invite you to welcome with me Barbara Finley, Lee Nevins, 
and Judge Kyle McKenzie, among others, to a series of kitchen table discussions on the legal system, protecting its institutions, judicial independence, access to justice, where to start. You can see there's a lot to talk about. Conversations with the President. Episode 1 is out now.